Yeah, well, good evening, everybody. I'm Tony Giddens. It's my pleasure to uh, welcome everyone here this evening to this auspicious debate, the title of which is uh, up here, and uh, which I think is, uh, as Mary Calder will say, is uh, connected with the publication of the yearbook of the, uh, for the study of civil society from the Center for the Study of Global Governance. Um, can I briefly introduce our four panelists? Very briefly, because there are four of them. Mary Calder is Professor of Global Governance at the LSE and Director of the Center for the Study for Global Governance. And I have to say I was very pleased to lure her to the LSE when I was Director of the LSE um, from her bolt hole down in Sussex, and she's had a very big impact on the institution since she came here. Ziba Mir Hosseini is Senior Research Associate at the Center of Islamic and Middle Eastern Law at SOAS and uh, holds a variety of degrees and uh, the author of numerous works but also interestingly made some very well-known films including Divorce Iranian Style. Rita Payne is the current chair of the Commonwealth Journalists Association. She is the former Asia editor for BBC World and she worked at the BBC for nearly 30 years in a very distinguished career. Zani is connected to the Center for Global Governance. He's the founder of the Free Burma Coalition. He's an activist pressing for democratic change in Burma, um, deploying numerous sorts of resources in order to do so, including the resources of the internet, which is bound to figure substantially in the discussion tonight. So let me uh, ask you just to give a little round of applause to our speakers before they say anything. Thank you. Well, I now turn to uh, Mary, first of all, to uh, speak. And uh, each speaker will speak for only 10 minutes, and then we'll have uh, interaction with the audience. Mary? Well, thank you very much, Tony. And I just want to say back again how grateful I am to Tony for having brought me here to <laughs> <laughs> and how much I miss you. So... Uh, <laughs> Come back, Tony. And um, as, 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 as Tony explained, this is part of a study we did for our yearbook. It, it was last year's yearbook called Communicative Power and Democracy. I'm just showing it to you. But we've also just brought out a new one, uh, which I've got a copy of for you to all see, on poverty and activism, which we did jointly with the Tartar Institute of social studies in Mumbai, so it's all about slumdog millionaires. I thought I'd start just by mentioning something which isn't in the chapter at all, but uh, I think is a really interesting phenomenon, uh, pointed out to me actually by one of my students, which is, I don't know if any of you have heard of Ushahidi. Ushahidi is a website started in Kenya during the riots, and Ushahidi means testimonial in Swahili. And what people started doing was using their mobile phones to report where there was violence or where there was a problem and upload their reports to a mobile phone, which was a sort of security measure as well as a witness measure. So everybody knew what was happening. And the model has been taken up. Well, first it was used in Gaza, which means we have much more information than ever before about what happened in you can look up the website, it's, 
it's uh, promoted by Al Jazeera. And people rang up on their mobile phones and said, this is what happened here. And now there's one for swine flu. <laughs> so the reason I'm giving you this example is it's actually one of the many examples we came across in this study, which shows how global there are global connections even in the most violent and repressive places, and how important those global connections are. We did this study for the yearbook of the liberal regimes, and what struck us was how little there has been on illiberal regimes since the end of the Cold War. It was very fashionable during the Cold War years to study totalitarianism, to study what Weber called sultanism, to study authoritarianism. But after the end of the Cold War, the preoccupation of scholars was with the spread of democracy. And there has really been no systematic study of what is the character of non-democratic regimes, we called them illiberal regimes, in the post-Cold War period. And we thought the way to study these is not in the traditional way that you look at the nature of the state, but rather to look at the nature of the spaces that exist. And the more the spaces that exist, well, the more one hopes it will move towards in a liberal form. So, this study was simply to look at what spaces exist in illiberal regimes. And we took six countries as cases, but we took lots of other examples. They were Burma, China, North Korea, Iran, Saudi Arabia, and Belarus. And today we've got someone from Iran and someone from Burma who will talk more about it. So I just want, in my very short introduction, to say three things that came out of this study. The first was that illiberal regimes are today different from, at least from the totalitarian and sultanistic regimes of earlier periods because of the spaces that exist. It really isn't any longer possible to have a closed authoritarian state. That's even true in North Korea. In North Korea, for example, there is, and you might not say that's a space, it's not civil society, I don't know what you'd call it, but it's an economic space. There is a whole lot of smuggling over the border uh, with China in the north, and mostly women for brides in China because of the shortage of women. And in order to organize it, they've developed a mobile phone network, and through the mobile phone network, they get all kinds of other information about what's going on in the rest of the world. Similarly, in Burma, I mean, Burma and North Korea, I guess, were our most closed societies that we studied. And um, I'm sure Zani will tell you more about that. Um, you know, there are tea shops, there are internet connections, there are places, even in homes, where people can meet. Um, and in fact, what we did mainly in this was to describe those spaces. And I'm not going to give you a great description because I hope we will hear more from others. But we described the ideas, we described the issues. Uh, the interesting, I think on the ideas, perhaps the most interesting thing is that perhaps the most powerful current in illiberal regimes is what we call reform ideas, not necessarily ideas that are purely liberal ideas, though Aung Suu Kyi does represent that, but ideas that somehow are within the dominant discourse. And I'm sure Ziba will talk about the new religious thinking 
you know, on Chimay. <laughs> but uh, that's certainly within Islam. But it's a reformist approach within Islam. And in China, one of the most interesting things is this notion of rightful resistance, that you resist on the basis of rights that exist within the constitution and within the ruling ideology. Um, we described issues. People are active on things like HIV AIDS. Environmental issues are often very important in illiberal regimes. We described the type of activists, women, youth, NGOs, and we described above all spaces of which virtual space, which there's a lot, is of course absolutely crucial, but there are other spaces, religious institutions, universities, people's homes, the media, of course, is another very important space, and cities abroad. London is an incredibly important space uh, for many illiberal regimes, and many of the most important newspapers of, say, Saudi Arabia are published here in London. So that was our first conclusion, was that there were spaces. Our second conclusion is that what determines the nature of the regime is what's inside those spaces. Uh, in other words, it's not, you know, in the past we thought about what's internal and what's external. These are global spaces, actually, created by the internet, created by trade. They may be economic spaces, they may be political spaces. But some of the spaces are filled by progressive people, but a lot of the spaces are filled by what we call, and have started to call in our year, but regressive globalization, the underside of globalization. They're filled by criminal tendencies allied to extremist ideologies, whether they're religious fundamentalism, Wahhabism in Saudi Arabia, nationalism of an extreme kind in Belarus. It's the fact that there is regressive globalization that actually sustains often these illiberal regimes. So that's the second conclusion, that they, 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 they remain not because in power because they're coercive. They actually don't have the coercive apparatus to sustain themselves. Uh, they remain in power because there are illiberal spaces or aggressive globalized spaces. And I guess the final conclusion uh, that follows from all this is that if you're an outsider, actually, <coughs> the traditional coercive methods, and by which I mean sanctions and at its extreme <coughs> military intervention, are not very effective in liberalizing such regimes. They may have the opposite effect. And it's very obvious in the case of somewhere like Iraq. What the intervention in Iraq did was to stimulate regressive globalization. <laughs> what it did was to stimulate crime and to stimulate extremist ideologies. And sanctions often do the same thing. Sometimes sanctions work. They don't always not work. And obviously, they worked in South Africa if they're allied to liberals inside the regime. And so the real conclusion is if you really want to change illiberal regimes from the outside, then the only way is through communication. The only way is actually engaging in those spaces and shifting from regressive to progressive globalization. 
And interestingly enough, that's what many of, in the course of doing this, we, we did our studies, both through looking at the available literature, but also we sort of engaged in email correspondence with whoever we could reach inside the countries. And that's what almost everybody told us. They said, we want to be engaged with global civil society. We want to know what's going on in your conferences. We want to come. And one Chinese said to us, globalization is actually our only hope for democracy. So globalization is both positive and negative. And the question is, how do we engage with it in such a way as to push the positive tendencies? Thank you. Thank you, and thank you for the invitation. In their chapter on um, uh, global society and illiberal regimes, Mary Calder and Denisa Kostovikova, they write, I quote, civil society in an illiberal regime is shaped and constrained by its own repressive political environment as well as complex global connections. These co global connections, of course, include international politics. In my brief uh, remarks here, I basically want to do three things, and I'm sure that I won't have to do them um, adequately. So I want to stress first that how liberal Western regimes may not only may constrain civil society in illiberal regimes, but also delegitimize and silence it. In many Muslim contexts, there is a kind of symbiotic relation between their illiberal regimes and Western liberal democracies, in a sense that they need each other, they constitute each other. And this is really the case in the Middle East. And I also want, what I want to do is to focus uh, on Iran and also show that how the efforts of the civil society and its actor to break down, down this symbiotic relationship in the course of 20th century have been frustrated. And I will take this opportunity also to talk a little bit about the upcoming presidential elections in Iran. And these presidential elections have several features that I think, if everything works properly, can break down this symbiotic relationship. And the role of the new media is extremely important here. And Iran, Persian after English and French is uh, uh, the third blog language. And uh, the new me media, and especially the internet uh, and Facebook, have really, um, is playing a very important role in this, uh, in this election, and also the issue of gender equality has become central uh, to the elections. In the course of the 20th century, Iran had two revolutions. And in both revolutions, democracy, rule of law, were, and independence were among the main demands and slogans of the revolutionary. The first revolution, known as Constitutional Revolution, unfolded between 1906 and 1911, ended uh, an absolute monarchy, created a parliament, and the second revolution, uh, which grew uh, in the course of 1970s, led to, uh, in 1979 into an Islamic Republic. Both revolutions ended up creating 
illiberal regimes in Iran. The first one was a secular, modernizing, illiberal regime upheld and supported by the Western liberal democracies. And the second is a theocratic, a mixture of theocratic and democratic regime, which has a great deal of popularity in the Muslim world. Outside intervention has already several times both provoked and frustrated Iranians' struggle for democracy. Iranians are well aware of the US and UK backed coup in 1953 that toppled the democratic government of Mohammad Mossadegh after he nationalized the Iranian oil industry. And all Iranians know, and it is very fresh in the memory, that the same Western liberal regime supported Saddam Hussein's eight year war on Iraq between 1980 and 1988. The result of both interventions were catastrophic, not only for Iran, but also for Western interests in the regime. The 1953 coup was the undoubted precursor of 1979 revolution. Without that coup, there would have been no Islamic revolution. And also, without the invasion of Iraq, uh, the revolution would have never taken such a course and would not uh, result into a clerical a theocracy. And, uh, since the establishment of Islamic Republic, Iran has been holding election almost every other year. And the election has become so central to the Iranian politics and also the way that people and civil society engage with the state, at times undermine it, at, at times you know, they're totally subordinated by the state. And by the early 1990s, um, uh, there was a dialogue which was foster, uh, fostered between the reformist elements of the Iranian uh, civil society and also the government, uh, who tried to democratize and liberalize the Iranian uh, regime from within. And um, uh, among the elections that Iran has had, so far, two elections have taken Iranians by surprise and the outsiders by surprise. The first one was the 1997 election, presidential election, when Mohammad Khatami, the candidate that nobody in Iran thought had any chance, won with a landslide and brought the reformist movement and new ideas into the structure of power. And the second election, which took Iranian and the world by surprise, was the 2005 uh, when Ahmadinejad, the current president, a, high a hard liner, was chosen. I don't have time to go to explain why it has happened. But basically, uh, the fact that Khatami's um, uh, election had a lot to do with the opening from inside, after the end of the war with Iraq, and after um, the period of reconstruction uh, that started. And uh, Ahmadinejad's election and his victory to a large extent owes to the politics of the war of terror and the invasion of Iraq, which really enforced the hand of um, uh, hardliners and put the reformists in Iran in, on a crossfire. And also because people in Iran, the civil society actors, mainly the students group, among the civil society actors in Iran, students group and women are the main actors. Uh, and main players, they boycotted the election because 
they were frustrated, um, disillusioned with the, uh, with the um, speed of reforms, and uh, at the same time, uh, they were, none of them, none of those who really even boycotted the um, election in 2005 had imagined that by their boycotting election, they would leave the field open to the radical forces. Because they thought that the election uh, result would be between Rafsanjani, who represented the establishment, but the moderate, and also uh, one of the reformist candidates. But then Ahmadinejad won. And looking back, I mean, there is a great deal of discussion and debate that whether he won through a fair election uh, process or whether the election rooms were, were rigged. But definitely, one can say in the se uh, it was the first presidential election that went into the second round in, in Iran. And by the time that it went to the second round, Ahmadinejad presented himself as the candidate who speaks for justice for bringing oil money on people's table, and also standing up to imperialism. So all these elements play the, the hand there. And now we are 10, uh, on uh, 10, 12th of June would be uh, the 10th presidential election. And this uh, presidential election has several features that really um, Distinguishes, uh, distinguishes it from the other election. First is that uh, given the lack of um, uh, access to official and print media, because what happened was um, in the second presidency of Khatami and also during the Ahmadinejad's uh, presidency, the print media has now been and the television is under the control of the conservative forces. So the reformists have no access to that. And, so, and reformists now conducting the bulk of their campaign through the alternative uh, media. That is cyberspace and also web blogs and uh, Facebook. And the two important arm, and the second feature of this election which is important is that two important arms of civil society in Iran, that is women's group and um, uh, students, have seized the space that has opened up during the election. Because during the election time, traditionally uh, in Iran, the, the level of tolerance of the authorities and regime raises a little bit. So the issues can be raised, and this is a time that for the first time, women's group and students have used it in order to put their demands and agendas and insert it into the um, election. On uh, 25th of April, um, uh, during a press conference, a uh, women's coalition, a number of women rights uh, activists um, form, uh, announced the formation of a new coalition called Women's Coalition for Voicing Women's Demands in the Election. And they entered the um, election uh, scene with two specific demands. And the first is for Iran to join SIDO, uh, the Convention for um, uh, Discrimination of All uh, Forms of Discrimination, um, for Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women. This convention was ratified in 2002 by the reformist uh, parliament during the Khatami's presidency. But it was blocked by the Guardian Council, and its fate has been undecided. When Ahmadinejad was elected, 
his government announced that uh, the minister of women's affairs, not the minister of women's affairs, uh, the, the person who runs the Center for Women, she said that as long as I am alive, as long as this government is there, this convention is not going to be ratified. So that became a point of contention, and women are now demanding for ratification of the convention, in a way inserting uh, the convention into the election ag agenda. And the second uh, demand uh, or specific issue that women have raised is revision of four articles of the Iranian constitution. All these four articles somehow, because the Iranian constitution is extremely ambiguous and ambivalent on the issue of rights and equality. All these four articles recognize equality in the realm of the family and women's equality, but make it subordinate to interpretations of Islamic law or the Sharia. And these interpretations are patriarchal interpretations so far. So they are asking for the revision of the constitution. And constitution. So in a way, they are directly challenging the, um, uh, the authority, the religious clerical uh, authority. What is also uh, new um, is how this disparate women's group have joined forces uh, in the coalition to make their election, to make this election a contest between the two reformist candidates. That is between Mehdi Karoubi, who is a clerical candidate, and Mir Hossein Musavi, a lay candidate. And in fact, by doing this, they have bypassed the authority of the state-controlled media to influence the agenda and the debates. What enables them to do is the new media. And the entire campaign is, as I said, is run, uh, conducted on the website and uh, weblog, mobile phone, SMS, and Facebook. And the use of this media for the debate and exchange of ideas and for engaging the candidates, they really use this media. And in doing so, they are creating a momentum that is undermining the channels and structures on which the unelected theocratic forces successfully relied in the previous elections and so far. That is their reliance on the mosque, their reliance on the militia, their reliance on the structure of the power. And they're really undermining this. Clearly, we cannot tell that how many Iranians are following this virtual campaign. But as we are told, 20 million have access to internet, and 40 million have mobile phones in Iran out of the population of 70, and a comparable number on the watch TV satellite. And recently, in January, BBC have joined in producing Persian TV program there. And these programs are watched. And also there is a good chance that a substantial proportion of the electorates will be at the very least aware of this campaign. In conclusion, I want to say, uh, end, it, uh, end by an optimistic note, and say that mm, I have hoped that this particular mm, election campaign has a chance to transform Iranian politics. It has it seems that it has disempowered some of the conservatives and illiberal forces. And to my knowledge, the only conservative candidate who is Ahmadinejad now and has the support of the supreme leader has not used uh, this space. And whenever he tried to, this, uh, to do this space, it has backfired. And uh, 
And also, um, uh, it is bypassing the, is, in a way, I think it is also bypassing the perception that the Iranian politicians have that the elections are uh, an arena that they need to stand up to the West. Somehow, it is bypassing that. And it is finally, I find it a hopeful sign that um, President Obama today has declared that he will not be approaching Iran with further diplomatic overtures unt um, until after the election is over. So probably the international realm has changed. The, the language of war of terror, it seems to be changing. So we might see impact on Iranian politics as well. Um, Wazani, I'll turn to you now. I think our next two contributors both got pictures. Uh, no, I have just a, a few slides of text. Oh, that's what I mean. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> um, Visuals, then. Yeah. Um, I have two things uh, on my mind. One is, of course, the, uh, uh, the current unfolding, you know, this farcical trial of Aung San Suu Kyi in Rangoon, and I think that you know, that has recaptured the world's imagination. And, um, um, you know, for the past, I don't know, 72 hours or so, like, um, I've been, like, staying up really late uh, trying to communicate with my colleagues inside the country until, you know, they would say, um, okay, I've got to go because, um, you know, there's you a speak power, to the mic, maybe power outage. And so, um, <laughs> because that's a regular occurrence over there. And the second is, um, and my, my wife is um, 39th week, in her pregnancy, and so um, I had to turn my cell phone off um, talking, and so I couldn't rush off um, when something um, like a crowning happens. <laughs> um, but um, the point of mentioning the, tr the trial in Rangoon and also um, saying that I've been staying up late and also, you know, I'm watching news here is to... Uh, and you're on the news as well. <laughs> <laughs> to buttress... Uh, um, uh, Mary's um, argument that there is a global civil society and you know this inside-outside thing has collapsed. This dichotomy is just fictitious. It doesn't exist. And, and Burma is a uh, you know, living uh, example of what she's arguing here. Um, also, the, um, uh, the fact um, that um, in the, in the post-Cold War period, um, you know, a lot of scholars uh, talked about democratization uh, transition and didn't really pay much attention to the uh, illiberal uh, character. Uh, not just the regimes uh, and political structures, but uh, societies there. And so when we're talking about um, the role of media in, um, in liberalizing um, societies under illiberal regimes, uh, we must not make the assumption that once the illiberal structures, political structures are removed, the society will necessarily be progressive and you know, uh, liberal. And so, and again, like the Burmese case um, demonstrates um, you know, both the illiberal character and, and actually I would argue here, um, you know, um, less progressive or, Ill, or illiberal uh, nature of the society in the, in the course of my uh, 10 minutes. Um, what we have there, um, the, my argument, uh, my first argument is that uh, feudalistic militaristic regime that has uh, the uh, trappings of a modern society and other uh, administrative and judicial uh, structures. Um, the other one is that the society uh, can be said to have been in existence uh, you know, 
fairly continuously over the past say, uh, one millennium. And if you juxtapose that to 1,000 years of peasant society of different ethnic backgrounds, um, you know, having gone through different illiberal systems of uh, uh, governments, you know, from absolute monarchy, uh, justified through Buddhist uh, kingly, uh, you know, uh, Buddhist kingship um, discourse, to say uh, British colonial uh, rule, which was, you know, by definition, colonial rule is not a liberal or social or political order. And then like, we were under the uh, British, um, not British, um, Japanese fascist military occupation for a short period. And then that was followed by at just one decade of quasi or semi-democratic civilian rule from 1948 to 58. Uh, in 1958, there was the first uh, military coup made to look like constitutional transfer of power. And then in 1962, a very decisive and formal coup. And so what I'm arguing here is that we have to take into account the nature and the history of the society you know, uh, in which we would like to see this liberal impact you know, um, from the, uh, the media. Uh, and when we say um, uh, media, uh, in the internet age, uh, the journalists and the professional media organizations no longer have the monopoly over how news is produced or how publicly relevant information is produced. Uh, you know, from um, you know, citizen journalists to bloggers to other uh, amateurs who capture different images and stories and then transmitting them through perhaps um, established media organizations, but um, also through the internet and other electronic uh, forms of um, uh, mass communication. The, um, when, when we say news or publicly um, relevant information, let's just say news, you know, f foreign, the most vivid example to understand news, at least to me, is to see uh, news as not that different from you know, either legally tradable consumer goods like the jeans or the uh, shirts or uh, uh, you know, uh, microphone stereo sets, or contraband items you know, like uh, automatic submachine guns. In other words, there is a, a process of manufacturing uh, news. News is not something that pops out of you know, uh, realities you know, um, as, as they unfold. And so if you have a process of manufacturing, these what others call symbolic goods, and there is an economic dimension to it. And, and one of my, or perhaps my major argument uh, for the tonight, as far as the Burmese um, you know, uh, struggle um, for human rights and dem democratization in Burma is that the cardinal failure of the Burmese activists including myself, and I would say Aung San Suu Kyi and others inside the country, is that we pay less attention to the economic dimension of creating these like communicative domains in the country, which can have double impact both on the political structures of the regime and on the uh, illiberal realities of uh, our culture and our so, uh, social order. And so that said, um, there are three things that I, uh, I wish to mention. Um, as far as the Burmese conflict in the country. Um, one is the, um, the logistical and infrastructural nature of um, the, um, the information and media production in the country. Um, you know, 
say, like magazine journals and, you know, very conventional um, um, media materials. But at the same time, like, it, because, you know, the Burmese are not completely closed off. Actually, we are not as closed off as uh, North Korea at all. Um, uh, it's not just possible uh, for Burma to be closed off because we're sandwiched between two dynamic Asian economies, Asia and, I'm uh, sorry, uh, China and India. Plus, uh, we, uh, you know, Southeast Asia, half of Southeast Asia has very dynamic um, economic regimes, such as Thailand or, you know, Thailand's perhaps going down a bit. Uh, um, but Singapore, Malaysia, Indonesia. Um, so what we have is a society that has access to, uh, you know, information technology, satellite technology, uh, computer software, uh, hardware, mobile phones, satellite phones, uh, you know, dial-up telephones, um, satellite dishes, and all the information technology um, hardware. And then on top of that, um, you know, the electricity is is often when we're talking about communications and Im impact on these societies, electricity has a very very strategic role to play. You know, I mean, like I, that's electricity is the last thing activists and others um, would think about. You know, in, in terms of pushing for uh, these uh, 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 boundaries of communication, and the the second aspect uh, where the conflict. Um, um, takes place is the uh, this ideological component or symbolic uh, uh, content of news and media, and um, you know both the regimes and the activists in our country, uh, as Mary said, um, are involved in both regressive and progressive aspects of uh, globalization. In other words, they you know regime has its own friends, and and, and activists have our own friends, you know, in the form of uh, INGOs operating in the country, uh, journalists dis uh, going there disguised as tourists, because like, if you apply as journalists for a Burmese visa, you will not get that. Um, and so, you know, there is a conflict and attempt, a struggle over who controls what comes out of Burma or what goes inside the country. And that's, you know, that, that's a conflict both uh, players are actively involved in. And, um, the third and, and last element is the, um, um, these are symbolic goods when we're talking about news and publicly relevant information. Um, it's, you know, even if you eat a sandwich or if, you know, a kid cannot peel uh, certain fruits. In other words, the, the users will have to have a certain intellectual capacity as well as educational capacity to, to basically unpack these goods so that the content is not just a content, but it becomes part of the process of, say, liberalizing their attitude, norms, um, you know, identity formation, as well as uh, challenging, um, you know, um, authority relations. Um, if, if we look at state as not just assem an assemble of institutions, but as a, a, social, a set of social relations, then I think uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, the impact on social relations, the nature of social relations from like feudal or patron client to more egalitarian and democratic becomes a very, very crucial um, element as well. Um, the, the key point that, I'm, that um, I want to illustrate is the military is spending inordinate amount of um, their resources to train their elite, you know, which uh, they build or whom they build as future national leaders of Burma. 
uh, you know, the military is going for basically um, uh, eternal rule. I mean, like uh, some, uh, the Burmese language um, that they use in, in the new constitution uh, would, would have that eternity as part of their uh, um, d uh, discourse. And, but at the same time, the military would let educational and other vital cultural and intellectual constitutions rot to the core. And, and so that's why, like, you know, when Mary said, uh, you know, uh, sanction not, is not necessarily the best approach to open up these um, uh, illiberal um, societies under illiberal regimes, because the military would send, say, like, literally a couple thousand military cadets in, you know, to train uh, in different um, technological and technical fields in countries like China, uh, Singapore, you know, India, um, though India is democratic, um, Russia. And uh, while you know, the opposition leadership or the opposition dissidents will have very few, relatively speaking, education and intellectual and cultural activities or opportunities vis-a-vis -vis the military elite. And so you see, the, the, the capacity of the civil society or opposition will gradually go down uh, because we are unable to invest and also there, there are you know, uh, policies that are set up to basically disengage Burmese institutions such as universities uh, with, the, uh, with um, institutions in the West because you know, the argument is that that would legitimize the regime because universities in Burma are under the Ministry of Education. So the, the, the final point um, I wish to illustrate is that this economic uh, disparity uh, the purchasing power disparity between the military regime and the civil society groups. Um, and to, the, uh, to do that, um, I'd like to bring up uh, just a few slides. Just basically, it's a data about the, you know. Doctor, accelerate a bit. Yeah, it would just be two minutes. This is from, um, from an internet, um, research survey, um, can you just go all of them, yes. Um, the, the, pop, the total estimate number of people wire or connected, it's, it's, it's a very wild um, guess, 40,000 to 500, very, very um, you know, wild guess. But that's what's called like a, a penetration rate. It's less than 1% of a, a total of 50 million a population of Burma. And, this, and, and Burma is the least um, uh, second least connected country in the world. The first is North Korea, and the next. And then the per, per capita annual income of uh, of Burma is two hundred twenty dollars UNESCO, and the cost. And, and if you compare that per capita income with the cost of um, installing monthly charges, see that broadband installation costs um, fifteen hundred US dollars. In a country where pop, you know the per capita income is 220, and then the um, monthly charges is 45 um, dollars, and then the number of connections in the country, or 50 million, 3,000 maximum. That's like uh, you know uh, broadband and um, internet. The, the next one, uh, number of cyber cafes, 500 serving 10% of the total population in two major cities, Rangoon and Mandalay. And, and then you, you just put that in the larger context of uh, you know, total population and the um, purchasing power of communities. And uh, the next one, please. 
And so, you know, like, you, you see, you get the point of this like massive like, disparity between what the regime is able to spend on, on its own elite uh, officer course and what the society is able to come up with. And then finally, this, this is, I thought, a very poignant uh, uh, line from um, last night's chat uh, with my friend in, in Rangoon. And we're talking about the trial and that, you know, at uh, 1249. Now, this is his English. Now, power. Electricity cut off here right now. I continue by battery. And then the next line is like, okay, I've got to go. The battery's gone. And then so, you know, we can talk about um, uh, a grand scheme about how to liberalize these re uh, societies and regimes. But electricity, economic disparity, they play a major, major role. Zani has been a frequent guest on programs I used to produce in BBC World. Um, and what um, I would like to talk about really is the changes that I've seen in news coverage and access to information from the region in the sort of many, many years I've spent at the BBC. So um, I'll speak mainly from my experience as a program editor and what impact the changes have had, greater access to people in the region who can give us news, and also some of the risks involved, some of the concerns that we have. So until August last year, I was Asia editor at BBC World TV News. And every morning when I came to work, I would brace myself for complaints from embassies and high commissions and pressure groups complaining about some aspect of our coverage. The other thing would be you, you would get loads of press releases and statements from governments, loads of press releases from activist groups. And out of that, you had to try and make some sense and try and decide what order, how would you prioritize the news that you carried, what would you pick up. And there were all sorts of uh, concerns and the reasons for the decision which aren't always clear to people. People often ask me and say, you know, why is it you're putting so much attention today and you're, giving, you're making this a headline story, whereas last week was only a tiny story. The truth can sometimes be that on a weekend, on an extremely quiet day, a story that would have been an end item becomes a lead item. So that's the reality of news. So generally, when we talk about illiberal regimes, uh, we think, tend to think about countries like Burma and North Korea, maybe Iran, and possibly China, which again, in some aspects, is opening up, and some are being tougher and closing up. But what um, I'd like to say quite a li little bit today about Sri Lanka, because I think this is one country, and the situations there really encapsulate all the different issues, the challenges, the problems which can face someone working in the media. And also in the case of Sri Lanka, you know, one section of the population, for example, the Tamils, would consider the government to be totally illiberal. But if you notice from the jubilation and the celebrations, and the, there's a tremendous amount of support for the government in ending 26 years of, you know, a violent separatist campaign. So, you know, is Sri Lanka illiberal for everybody? I mean, you know, it's just something you know, to consider. Um, so what we've, we've all been aware, of course, of the humanitarian crisis, which has been unfolding in the north of the country. And you know, there was concern, there was international outrage, because the army was determined to press ahead with its offensive against the Tamil Tiger rebels, despite international calls for a temporary truce. Because, you know, again, figures vary, but there were some estimates that up to 250,000 civilians were caught in this area of the fighting, which was a very narrow strip with the rebels. And then there were also reports, uh, which again couldn't be substantiated, that actually 
maybe the Tamil Tigers were using the civilians as human shields, and if they tried to escape, they were being shot. Again, you could not verify it, which is why you desperately need neutral sources in these countries, and especially a country like Sri Lanka. Now, um, uh, my former colleague, Chris Morris, who you may have all heard, who's been reporting on Sri Lanka, he's been there for very many, many years, and he summed up the problems faced by the media there. He said, reporting from Sri Lanka at the moment is extremely difficult. There is no independent access to the northern war zone or to the thousands of Tamil civilians who have crossed over to government-controlled territory. He wrote this about two weeks ago. The only regular sources of information are the government on one side and the websites sympathetic to the Tamil Tiger rebels, the LTTE. There is a propaganda war alongside the conflict on the ground and confirming details of what is going on is almost impossible. Many journalists covering South Asia have been unable to get visas to travel to Sri Lanka. Some have tried to enter the country as tourists and been turned back at the airport. Those who do travel to the north independently are stopped at a series of checkpoints far away from the war zone. The government says this is a necessary precaution to ensure that journalists do not come to any harm. So Chris goes on to say that the past few months have been one of the most challenging times to report from Sri Lanka. But again, Sri Lanka has never been an easy war to cover. The Tamil Tigers themselves have always ruled areas under their control with an iron hand. Dissent has never been accepted. And many Tamil critics of the LTTE have been murdered over the years. And Chris goes on to describe how intolerant the Sri Lankan authorities have become of criticism. When he made a trip to Sri Lanka last year, the defense secretary at the time, Gotabaya Rajapaksa, who's the president's brother, told Chris that in a time of war, all dissent was treason. And a few days later, in a front page newspaper report, the minister accused Chris Morris of supporting the Tamil Tigers and threatened to chase him out of the country. So the United Nations, the International Committee of the Red Cross, and several foreign embassies have also been the target of criticism. So with access denied to journalists, the media has to rely on government and pro-Tamil sources as Tamilnet. If I could have the first slide, please. And um, you will just see, even today, uh, an image taken from the Tamilnet website, which is the pro-LTTE site. And, and they, you know, at the moment, as you can see, you've got a tussle. What do you believe? The government is saying that they have killed the Tamil Tiger leader, Prabhakaran, the Tamil net, and the Tamil people are refusing to believe it. They think it's a big plot to discredit the government. So under these conditions, you find with Sri Lanka, it's almost impossible to win. I actually um, spoke yesterday while I was preparing my presentation to um, Professor Rajiva Wijesina, who is the Secretary General of the Secretariat for coordinating the peace process. And Every time there's any report from Human Rights Watch, Britain, anywhere critical, he would say that's all pro-LTTE. So I said, look, would you mind just giving me a couple of sentences on what do you think has actually been wrong that the Western media, in your view, has been uh, doing wrong in reporting the situation? And he said, you might simply consider the failure of the international media to apply rational argument to their acceptance of whatever is, whatever is placed before them by the Tigers and their allies. In particular, the surge of propaganda eight days ago 
followed the first breach since April in the imprisoning defensive walls with an exodus of nearly 1,000. The shooting then began specifically to stop people leaving, and that succeeded. So, so what we've had, as you can see in recent days, we've had demonstrations from Sinhalese in Colombo who are very angry with the international, uh, and especially the British government, for intervening and calling for a ceasefire. And you had Tamils who are accusing the government of not doing enough. And that is where I expect we will continue to face, the media will continue to face challenges like this in various other hotly disputed parts of the world. Since Zani has already covered Burma, um, I will skip that, only to say that Zani already mentioned um, you know, the fact that a lot of journalists are going in and sneaking into Burma as tourists. And it was quite amusing because there was a friend of mine uh, who was a journalist, and she said she was in Burma during the protests by the months, and she was in the hotel, and every other person was a journalist. But they all pretended not to know each other. And, um, and then on another occasion, we had another journalist. This is later on during, um, could we show the pictures, please, of the monks' protests? Yeah. So these are sort of images that were sent to us, uh, which we use. These were images which were sent. Usually, um, campaigning and activist groups are very quick um, and, and are very responsive in sending us material. Um, I'll mention later on the problems one has about verifying uh, and to be sure that you're not being manipulated in any way by the people who are sending you the material. Um, then I'll move on to say the Tibet protests in Lhasa in March 2008, which will be the next slide, please. Now, these have been sent to me by the International Campaign for Tibet. And um, so she, of course, said they had to be careful. They had images sent to them. They went to great lengths to verify these images, and they would pass them on to us. Now, there is a very tragic, um, if you could have the next slide, please. Yes. Now, this is very sad, which has not been sent to the media. And this, what, what Kate was telling me today um, was that this is a, a woman who was supposed to have been shot dead. And because it was quite grisly, quite grotesque, um, they were able to find out that she was shot dead when police opened fire at a protest in Kirti in March 2008. But she said a lot of the images they get is either poor quality or you know, something like this, which would be too upsetting, they felt, for viewers. So, um, but what Kate did point out is it's quite interesting. At this time of the economic downturn, the Chinese government is embarking on a multi-billion dollar media expansion overseas, including the establishment of a 24-hour English language all-news channel modeled after CNN and the opening of Xinhua offices across the world. So, but in the meantime, the Chinese government has been quick and is blocking access to all of the media. So there, there is a tussle going on and a race to see you know, if the government will be quicker and faster in introducing more control than it can. And I will now finish with what I consider to be a positive story of where the media is generally regarded to have been good news and done good, and that will be last. And that's the Maldives. Now, um, I, I'll talk about this because this is where the internet new media is credited with ending the authoritarian rule of Maumun Gayum who'd been a president for 30 years. And he was defeated in elections in 2008 and replaced by Mohammed Nasheed. Now, while Gayum was in power, the next slide, please, um, the man who was now president was actually jailed and sent to, into exile to remote Maldivian islands for a total of nearly six years. Now, I, um, at the time, at the height of these protests, 
there was um, Ahmed Shahid, who was then the foreign minister, and he would come to see me, and he would say, look, I don't want this publicly known, but we are having dealings behind the scenes with some of them, for the, for the, more, with the opposition parties. But, this, but eventually, Gayoum was going to introduce reform, not going to introduce reform, and then eventually, Ahmed Shahid you know, felt frustrated, he withdrew from the government, and then I met him again last week, and he's foreign minister again. And then I spoke to him about the changes and, and what had come about. And he said, really, he said, it was, the, it was again, the internet, because Gayoum had had complete control of the media, so he was able to portray himself and his family. They were almost like royalty. And ordinary Maldivians believed what they saw on television. And then with the internet, then you had cartoons of Gayoum, and slowly... You know, you, ha you had the internet media every chipping away at this Im grand image that Gayum had created. And ultimately, with all the news and the internet and the outcry generally, Gayum introduced reforms. And then finally, we have Nasheed, who is now president. But the, what I've always said to them, this is a test, is the opposition parties love the media when they're in power. But when they're in government, it could be a different story. So at the moment, Ali would say that yes, they are very pleased, they're very grateful to the BBC, to all other media organizations. When things get tough, when the media reports and things that they quite don't like, then that is really the time to see what they do. Um, so these are just some thoughts I thought I'd share with you. Well, thank you. I think I agree. Four really interesting and pretty complimentary presentations. We've got about 25 minutes for questions, so I invite questions, hopefully short and hopefully directed at particular members of the panel. Peter, is there a microphone somewhere? Yes, there is. Thank you very much. Um, this is really more of an observation, I think, than a question, and it's perhaps directed to all panel members. And it's this idea of an um, international or a global civil society and the extent to which perhaps it can be broken down into different audiences within that civil society. Because I'm thinking of the example that was, um, Rita just gave of a 24-hour English language news channel from China. And I know that Russia have one and Iran also have one called Press TV. And I think these are kind of different sorts of examples of how the, maybe the illiberal regimes are themselves trying to talk to global civil society. And they have their own interests. And I remember watching Russia Today's coverage of the unilateral independence of Kosovo, and it was clearly putting a very different view on what the message that they wanted to go out on Kosovo, say to CNN or, or even to Al Jazeera. So it's really just some kind of observations from the panel on the different sort of breaking down what we mean by global civil society. Yeah, thank you. Who would like to respond? Well, I'm quite... I think... Um, it's a very important point, and maybe one should talk about global civil societies. Uh, certainly, it's a very pluralistic um, environment. But I think one of the things that came out very interestingly from our studies was, obviously, the internet now is a scene of attempts by governments to control it. And you now have internet dissidents who've been jailed, and there's, we have a nice box in the yearbook about all the attempts to filter, to, to um, arrest, to deal with, 
to try to cut down on freedom in the internet, which particularly in Iran. But the interesting thing about it is there are limits to this process. And part of it is technical, that the technology changes so much that it's always possible to find clever ways to get around. One of the Burmese people, actually, that we were in touch with had some very complicated way of reaching us, but it took him almost an hour to get through this complicated way. But the other part is just exactly what you're saying that the regimes themselves need the internet to propagate their messages. So actually, they're constantly torn between wanting to control it and wanting not to control it so they can propagate their own messages. And that's really exactly what you're saying. That, and, and I suppose my faith that globalization is going to end up by being positive rather than negative relies on the fact that when people have access to different types of media in the end, if you have some kind of faith in human beings, as the freer it is, the more likely they are to make better choices. But it's not necessary. The more different media they can see. Um, I was struck by Zani's um, description that the battle between activism and um, Burmese military regime is basically about trying to stop things going in and out of the country. And I think that's particularly true in terms of activists' approach, um, in terms of trying to prevent tourists from going in. Tourists are actually a big pressure for opening up internet cafes. If a country wants to have a good tourism business, it has, has to do that. Um, the activists want to stop companies from going in. Companies equally want fast internet connections. And they're trying to also stop actual internet companies, ISPs, going in as well. So one of the impacts... Um, of activism on Burma has been to reduce um, the, the availability of the internet in Burma. My question, though, is in Iran, why isn't Ahmadinejad closing down Facebook and so on? And is it because we, internally within Iran there is pressure from the private sector, from those who are engaged in the outside world, to keep the internet going? Yes, to a large extent it is that. And also another part of it is that the Iranian uh, bureaucracy or the Iranian state actually has become reformist. So the change has really happening within the Iranian state. And even among the conservatives, uh, there is a debate that whether, because for Iranians it's very important to have economic success. And to do that, they need to use the new technology and science. So there is a debate there. And um, there is something also uh, about the whole uh, technology or the use or appropriation of certain media. That changes bring the change. I remember at the very beginning of the revolution in 1979, there was a huge debate whether cinema is going to be banned or not. But eventually, they decided to keep it because it was in the service of the revolution. But what happened was they wanted to create a generation of uh, ideologues, create an Islamic cinema. But what happened was the art really freed, changed, uh, changed uh, the Iranian cinema, and the art imposed itself on it. And I think the same thing somehow is happening with this new technology. You know, the medium is also changing the, those who are using it. Um, just a brief um, comment. That, that, um, Vicky was the um, 
British ambassador to Burma and Rangoon for uh, three and a half years, and she knows the situation very well. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, well, one thing I wanted to mention is um, I, I returned to Burma after, say, 16 years of exile in the U.S., and I was in, you know, I was uh, um, the guest of the regime in their guest house, basically intelligent, um, uh, um, um, one of the intelligence locations, and I was um, in their hands 24-7, except uh, uh, when I was sitting in on the on the toilet, and there was always a, a couple of officers around me, and so what was interesting was that um, I needed to communicate with um, you know uh, my daughter who I left in the U.S. and also um, you know some of my uh, closest uh, colleagues and friends. So I set up a new um, email account that doesn't have any resemblance to anything of me, and um, I would be right under the immediate nose of intelligence officer from an internet cafe, I would be communicating with Vicky and uh, others, you know. And, 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 and I, I suppose I was lucky enough not to have one of those Russian or Chinese trained uh, counterintelligence officer assigned to me <laughs> because they, they would be staring at the computer uh, screen and didn't know what, A, what I was writing or what I was doing. I was, you know, trying to like go through, uh, evade the firewalls and stuff. So that's why I think um, it's, it's really crucial um, uh, for the growth of uh, cyber cafes, and, and, and like Vicky said, uh, you know, one, one of the things that one of the mistakes that we had made was calling for the um, a boycott of tourism on moral grounds. You know, it feels good, but it is unstrategic. It is not helping the cause. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I was just wondering to go back to the question. Maybe this is a question for, for Mary again. Um, is there a point at which uh, you can quantify this question? Is there a point at which, you know, um, access to the internet, um, access to, to mobile phone services actually, you know, can make a difference and, and you start seeing a shift from illiberal to liberal? Maybe Iran is at that point. I mean, that was striking of all our studies that internet access was much greater in Iran than any of the other countries that we looked at. And we actually start our, our chapter with a little quote from an Iranian saying, if at night every light that is on in Tehran is someone driving through the internet road. <laughs> um, but on a previous, I mean, one of the things we try to do in the yearbook is to have lots of data and lots of statistics. And we've consistently had data on internet access. And we did some really interesting statistics on how there was actually a link between the degree of internet access and the degree of authoritarianism. Of course, it's a terribly statistically very difficult to do, but we took the World Bank's index on authoritarianism and we took internet. And it, was, it came out very, very clearly. So whether there's a moment of change, that I don't know. But there's it does seem to me there's pretty good evidence that there is a positive correlation between internet connections and um, liberal. Rita, do you want to comment on that? Uh, Being inside the media. Uh, no, what I have something I'm covering from a different Sorry, angle is that what I did discover was quite interesting with China. There were various developments which surprised us and surprised the Chinese. For example, the Chinese were really, really angry with the West, with our coverage of the protests in Tibet. 
And I think to a certain degree, um, we may have been maybe slightly to blame in the sense that because the campaigners, the protobed campaigners, were so vocal, you had a glamorous people like Joanna Lumley, everyone loved the Dalai Lama, so really almost you know, three, four, five times a day, everybody would, you know, would be on from some pro-Tibet group. And then after a while, I, I received a call from a Chinese writer who's based in London, and she said, Rita, she said, I'm so disappointed, a lot of my friends are disappointed, because she said, we used to look up to the BBC. And now we found it's just one-sided reporting. And she said, it really, we're terribly disillusioned. And a lot of us are beginning to think that you know, the BBC's almost propagandist of the Chinese government. Because of course then we realized there were not many Chinese voices who were coming and giving their views of what was going on. And then they also felt that we didn't report the pro-Chinese government rallies and the people who'd been around. Because you know, it was almost instinctive that you thought there's no press. And of course, the Chinese took full advantage of some of the shots where a few of the Tibetans were seen to be a bit violent. And they sort of showed that over and over again. So all the mass Chinese people said, oh, well, you know, the Chinese are violent. So that was what? Tibetans. Uh, I'm sorry, Tibetans, sorry. And then the other thing that happened is then, shortly after that, when we had the earthquake, then suddenly the Chinese were surprised because they suddenly found that, oh, but the Western reports, media reports were favorable because they were more, if you remember, the prime minister went to meet the people and the Chinese were also praised the government for the way they handled it. And suddenly they were sort of thrown by saying all of a sudden when they were used to the Western media hammering them, then all of a sudden they have some favorable coverage. But so it's quite interesting to see that they themselves were puzzled and how there's a sort of nationalism growing at the moment in China, which uh, again, when uh, they blocked the BBC for a while, and suddenly they found when the Chinese masses and they were on the internet blogs, there was support of the government. And the government thought, actually, we let the, uh, the Western media report because it's working in our favor there. Well, I just came back from Italy where Mr. Berlusconi owns about 85% of the Italian media, whatever one makes of that. He's, could you wait for a mic maybe to get to you? This is a question for Mary. Mary, you mentioned in your introduction that London is a very important place to these liberal regimes. Why, why is this? Um, it's just simply because there are lots and lots of diaspora groups that live in London. In other words, I don't say it's terribly important for the regimes. I'm saying it's terribly important for the spaces inside these countries that you will find dissident groups including the Tamils, to take the Sri Lankan example, but where there's a very lively political debate going on, whether it's among Saudi dissidents. And interestingly, in the Saudi case, it's between the establishment and the dissidents. It's the area where they actually communicate with each other. Um, but you'll find newspapers, medias, debates going on all over London, because London is full of people from different uh, illiberal regimes. Observations? Yes, mine is about the, the Burman situation. Uh, I find it a bit disheartening that considering Burma's history, the past extremes of British rule and Japanese fascism you mentioned, is there not a dilemma in terms of a limited choice for the military regime to liberalize Burma's institutions considering the internal social and economic chaos there. Uh, can you repeat the last bit? I, I missed it. 
Yeah, in terms of, there, is there not a dilemma for the regime, considering liberalization of Burma's institution and the internal social and economic chaos within the country? Yeah. Um, you know, when I say um, we have to look, take into account the nature of the society and the uh, historical background, I don't mean to mean it in a deterministic way. You know, uh, just simply because the Burmese did not have a democratic uh, tradition as a political uh, uh, practice doesn't mean that um, a, um, you know, th they have to go through another 800 years of evolution you know, to, to get to where um, they need to be. You know, we're not talking about full-blown uh, you know, Western liberal, liberal democratic polity. We're talking about basically a, a government that is decent and humane and takes into account as its own priority, the well-being of the people, and, and and so in that you know um, in that regard, what the regime needs to do is not necessarily uh, radically uh, either give up power or you know like be the main democratizer, which they are incapable uh, psychologically and intellectually, and and in terms of the regime's argument that. It needs to be there because of internal instability, or the potential, or perceived, or the real. I think it it it, it is self-serving. If there is a dilemma, it is a self-serving dilemma. So you know this this is akin to what uh, people like uh, Lee Kuan Yew argue in the past. Uh, you know um, uh, Asian values. You know in the first place, there is not a single set of Asian value that all Asians share. You know Asia is an extremely diverse civilizational context. And then so, you know, uh, so if balkanization or like, you know, uh, control of the uh, social, um, social chaos in the country is made by these regimes, you know, then certainly, you know, it smacks of uh, this um, desire to self-justify. Can you wait for the mic? Because then everyone can hear. Do you have any special opinion about the Italian policy on asking ID and photo and passport to go to a cyber cafe in any part of Italy? Uh, Iran or Italy? <laughs> Italy, I, I think uh, Tony would be in a better position. <laughs> Italy, just coming back from that. <laughs> no, Mary, you answer because you're the, you're the guru of the whole thing. <laughs> it sounds like a mad idea to me. It's, ju it's just incredible, and it's a real, it's really dangerous sign, and something that we should be terribly worried about. I think. Yeah. <laughs> Happy yeah. To But you're not going to say how it relates to your arguments because this is a country with very high level of internet penetration and all the rest of it, and in the wider world and part of the European Union and so forth. How does it fit or not fit with your? I mean, since I haven't read the yearbook, I don't know what the arguments <laughs> are. But how does it fit with? And also a liberal <laughs> democracy. Well, I mean, pretty much because yeah. Well, I was thinking. You know, it's often said Italy wouldn't get into the EU if it applied to join the question. Them. But another part of what we did in this book was to talk about the paradox. I mean, we, here we're talking about illiberal regimes, but actually what does it mean to democratize? 
And one of the features of globalization has been the spread of democracy. But actually, it's been, as we argue, the spread, if you like, of democratic procedures. And in fact, if by democracy you actually mean the ability to influence the situation in which you live, globalization has both, on the one hand, increased the procedures of democracy, but on the other hand, precisely because the important decisions that affect where you live are not necessarily taken by the state, but can be taken by in all sorts of things, it hasn't necessarily increased substantive democracy. And in fact, one of the things that we've been arguing is the spread of democracy has been really, has something, a formal procedures of elections has something to do with the integration of the world. That's what it's really about. Less about people being able to influence their lives and more about accepting, creating acceptable members of the international community. <laughs> and the struggle is how do you actually, of course it creates conditions in which you could be more liberal, in which there could be more freedom, but it isn't necessar doesn't necessarily follow that that's the case. It opens up spaces. And I guess if we go back to the case of Italy, Italy's part of the European Union, it has high internet penetration, but an awful lot of all that matters, who controls penet internet penetration, who controls the media, and you have a big problem with Berlusconi. But you also have a struggle going on, and that comes out in the book as well, that there is a struggle about controlling the internet. The war on terror has been an attempt also to control it the internet. So there's something going on. There is a, governments are aware of what a problem the internet is. But could you argue that sometimes the internet actually produces illiberal tendencies itself? I mean, and how would you deal with um, Rita's point of, of contesting versions of illiberality within the same society? Because you could perhaps argue that the internet might sometimes exacerbate such conflicts rather than Well, and that is our point about regressive globalization. I mean, and if you look at how Al-Qaeda mobilizes, it's through these hideous websites. So actually, there's a kind of anarchy going on in, uh, on the internet. And there's, I mean, in fact, one of the interesting things about somewhere like the BBC is that news is controlled. And filtered by people like Rita, <laughs> and the internet lacks that filtering process. So in fact, people are exposed to very illiberal arguments. So that was my real point, that my optimism stems from the fact that if people see both illiberal arguments and liberal arguments, they may be more likely to choose liberal arguments. But it doesn't necessarily follow, and that's the whole point, illiberal regimes are not necessarily closed regimes. They're regimes where people uh, promote illiberal ideas. Um, can I mention just one thing um, that we haven't touched on uh, when we're talking about um, liberalizing um, societies and systems under illiberal regimes? Um, that is the um, um, basically corporate control of natural resources. If you look at, um, you know, the uh, natural resource-rich countries, they are often under illiberal regimes. And there is a very direct correlation between you know, the uh, um, natural resource endowment, rich endowment, and the poor um, 
human rights record. And, uh, and you know, it would be incomplete when we argue for liberalizing uh, these um, countries and, and uh, societies without touching on the issue of um, natural resource extractive industry and the way in which uh, modern life has become wholly dependent on this. And so, you know, it, there's, a, there's a dialectic going on here. You know, uh, we don't know which one is a cause, which one is a fact, I mean, um, the effect. Could you just clarify, I don't quite understand the argument. Could you clarify that? Um, one would be saying, like, uh, the phenomena of natural resource curse. You know, in, in like the curse um, of oil, you mean? The curse of it could be any type of minerals or or, or timber, you know, extractive industry, and and it is one of the most powerful industries in the world. And when they they can mobilize, um, you know, um, armies and security forces, and these are guys who call on presidents and prime ministers and armed forces uh, chiefs of staff to safeguard uh, their. Uh, pro uh, you know, assets in these illiberal contexts. If, say, for instance, you know, when um, you mentioned uh, the, um, the uh, socialist government nationalized the uh, Iranian gas, you know, there was a response. You know, that you are reeling from that response uh, today. You know, if we want to follow your logic uh, historically, so so I think, in terms of uh, looking at uh, you know uh, the positive impact of say uh, positive globalization in the form of expanding communicative power of the people and how that can liberalize the structures in these societies. We also need to talk about um, the, the revenues that prop up these regimes in, in um, natural resource rich countries. That's what I meant by the role of uh, natural resource extractive um, uh, industry and the, the way in which uh, you know, the uh, modern civilization has become so gas and oil uh, dependent. Well, I think we've just got time for one more question, and then we'll have to call it an evening. And I apologize to other people who wanted to ask questions. Uh, I have a question for Professor Caldo. Um, in case of extremely close societies such as North Korea, where the existence of civil society is pretty much invisible, what can be the role of outside actors such as international community to enlarge the civil society and uh, the empower civil society and enlarge those few spaces? Um, well, North Korea is indeed a very difficult one and I think there's rather little that can be done. But I just want to make, I suppose, two points. One is the point that um, Ziba made, uh, which is also a point I made more indirectly, which is that when you have threats and sanctions, that often helps the regime. It doesn't always be the case, but it often tends to be the case, just as, you know, the war on terror legitimized the conservatives in Iran. So a more aggressive policy towards North Korea actually helps the hardliners inside North so one thing is what you shouldn't do. <laughs> That's one conclusion. The other is, of course, that trying to build connections, trying to help whoever you can find, and it's very difficult to find anybody, but it, so the most you can do in a place like Korea is to open up. But I think in other places, and Iran and Burma are all very good examples, just engagement and discussion is what is really important, given the argument that we just have 
that actually the media can be illiberal as well as liberal, then what's important is for more and more people to engage in debate and discussion in these situations. So that's what I would say has to happen. But I think the central argument is, and I think that's very important, that I think what we're saying, and in a way that was the lesson of the 1989 revolutions, that if you really want to change societies, it does come from below. There's something that the outside can do, but it comes from below. And communication is really key. But below nowadays doesn't just mean inside. Below means that the inside and the outside are blurred. And I think that's the message. That's why you know, I'm arguing over and over again communication is key. There may be cases where sanctions and threats are useful, but only if people tell you we want that. Uh, and so that's, I think, the central argument. Oh, I thought they were really interesting presentations, and uh, we thank all our panelists for I think a really interesting evening. Thanks very much.